Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Dini. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to the big interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travelled to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast would not happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, to become one of our members and get an extra big interview every month, plus loads of bonus content. So go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Graham Hunter, and we'll bring you joy. Part two of the big interview with Paul Robinson. You see already why he's popular on television, because he tells stories fantastically. At this stage, we're going to get life at Spurs. We're going to get life when you make a mistake, or was it a mistake, for England away to Croatia. What are the psychological burdens that a goalkeeper has to suffer when things aren't going well for him? And above and beyond that, what's his favourite match in his entire career? Might it feature Barcelona? I think it might. Part two of Paul Robinson on the big interview coming along, featuring the Hotel Duvan in Harrogate. We recommend it, and I recommend to you with all my heart. Paul Robinson, part two. Why Spurs? There was an opportunity. I can tell you the story about Spurs. They tried to sign me in January. In the, in the window when Leeds were really struggling at the time the fire sale was gone on yeah. me and Alan Smith were the kind of the last two uh, that were there because they desperately needed the money and we were we were the last two of the, the old guard if you like once all the loans had come in and the club had really fallen apart you had players there who genuinely didn't want to fight for the cause that mm. were there agents had brought certain players in and it was a horrible place to be you'd come in training one day and you wouldn't know who was going to be there who was going to be sacked and it was at, it was at the stage where they were sacking Backroom staff, laundry ladies, kit men, people like that, who were Horrendous. on half of what yeah. anyone else was on. on people who had been part of your daily fabric, yeah. morning, how's the, it going? The, the actual heart and soul of the club people were getting sat, which was, it was a terrible thing to see because you look at it and you, you see players there on tens of thousands a week that they can't get rid of, yet they'll sack somebody who's on 10 or 15 grand a year who's part of the club and it's their livelihood. There's just when football clubs cut, cut costs and cut corners like that to save money, you just don't see the logic on it on no. the backroom staff the important no. people who earn a fraction a year of what the big stars do every week and they've got them sat there doing nothing which still to this day frustrates me um, and you know it's, it, it's difficult when you, when you look back at it but Spurs came in for me in January the year before that I'd almost signed for Aston Villa mm. David O'Leary was at Aston Villa and wanted to take me to Aston Villa um, and it was just the wrong time for me I just didn't want to go. Leeds, my team, I'd been there since I was 13. Mm-hmm. We'd stayed up the year before. We were in the Premiership again for another year. Didn't really fancy living in Birmingham at that stage of my life, at that age. And it just didn't appeal to me. Um, it had nothing to do with finance or money or anything like that. Mm. My club, Leeds, was still in the Premier League. And I wanted to play there again. I think with blinkers on, you think, well, this can't go on for much longer. Yeah. The, the, bad, you know, the bad times, you're thinking, look, we've stayed up. Everything's going to be all right. Do you know what? It's not for me. I'd rather have another year at Leeds in the Premiership than Aston Villa in the Premiership. 
So in hindsight, I stayed and ended up moving to Tottenham, whether it was the right thing or not to do. My time at Tottenham worked out, so it probably was. I, I enjoyed my time at Leeds. They came for me in January, went down to Spurs, uh, did the medical, contract was agreed, everything was done. And at the, the 11th hour, they were going to loan me back to Leeds, like Spurs quite often do. But because of the problems at Leeds and it was a transfer window and everything else, they'd taken too many players on loan. So they couldn't sell me and loan me back. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden there became a real problem because they didn't have a goalkeeper and Spurs wanted to sign me but wanted I could loan me back and all the deal collapsed. So I shook hands with Daniel Levy in January on a, a, a man's word, on an honour, and he said, look, if Leeds United go down or whatever the situation is, we'll revisit the situation in the summer, we'll come back for you in the summer. And true to his word, we, we went down and within a week or so, first on, first on the phone, the deal's, the deal's on, we're going to try and do the deal. We still want you kind of thing, which was... That's an unusual a, part of football, huge, the honour. A huge respect for, for Daniel Levy and the way that he, he conducted business that yeah. way. And John Alexander, who was the club secretary at that time, and had a great relationship with the both of them. And it was because they could see it was a difficult time for me. I was only 20, 23, 24, I think. And it was going to be a big move for me, moving down from Yorkshire. Uh, at 23 I was, because I was at Leeds from 13 to 23. I was there 10 mm -hmm. years. And it was going to be a big, big move for me, and, and they could see that. And with it all falling down and collapsing around me, it was, it was strange. And then to come back, to, I knew I was going back to Leeds, but to have the Tottenham thing taken away completely, it was, it was odd. Why did you trust? I, I had no other option. I, I was going back. The, the contract was done. The contract was agreed. It was all mm. there. Obviously, nothing was signed because you couldn't. You see my point that in football, that's not a normal way to proceed. And in football, although we both adore yeah. the sport... In the fringes of the industry, it's a pretty hard, ruthless, sometimes ugly. Well, listen, I, sh I shook hands with Daniel Levy and John Alexander, not knowing whether I'd ever see him again. That's, that's the truth of the matter. I could have gone to Leeds, we gone back to Leeds, we could have stayed up, and I could have ended up staying at Leeds another year. Or Spurs might have watched me between then and the end of the season and gone, not quite what we thought he was him, you know. Let's, let's just forget that. It's like, delete, erase, don't ever speak to him again type thing. But... It was a difficult end to the season. I shipped a bag full of goals because we were poor at the time and we were getting relegated. But I was still playing well. I still played, you know, and there was obviously a potential there at that age that they could see. Mm -hmm. um, and as I say, it's true to their word as it was, it was a very, very quick deal. It was done very quickly because the contract was already done from the January and it was a case of dotting the I's and crossing the T's and, and, and the move was done. You went there a really, well, what... Spurs as an experience for you overall was good a trophy yeah lots of England exposure yeah. you develop as a goalkeeper but, but overall it was also quite a bumpy ride yeah with the well towards the end I love my time at Spurs I think I played some of my best football at Spurs and they love you the Spurs fans still yeah, adore you yeah. instantly got a fantastic rapport with the Spurs fans hit it off straight away I just think they could see my my will to win I, I wasn't a Spurs fan as a kid I, I'm a Spurs fan now as well as a Leeds fan I just loved my time there. There was just a, an instant rapport there, an understanding between the two. And yeah, it was, it, was, it was strange because I was accepted very, very quickly. But I think my performances helped as well. Um, I was fairly, fairly consistent in my first couple of years there. And I think they, they could just see my passion and will to win. It wasn't a case that I was just there to play for their club. I wanted to do everything that I could to make their club successful. What did the first couple of years at Spurs teach you? What did you learn? I thought it was great. It was a big step up for me. It was going to, to a, a top half Premier League club and one traditionally that you've seen that's got a huge history of winning trophies, players, top quality players, going to London, massive stadium 
and it was a real step up. I used to love going there as an away waiting player at the White Hart Lane. What a fantastic stadium! And it was just, it was it was a ride, and I was I was loving being on the ride. And with that came the England call up, been part of the England setup, and it was that time at Spurs. Looking at it now, looking back at it, was probably the foundations, the real first push to be where they are now. Mm-hmm. From when Martin Yol took over, I think I signed for. Well, I say I signed. I didn't. When I signed, there wasn't a manager. I signed for David Pleat, whom I still talk to today. I've got so massive respect for. He, he what, knows football inside what out. What loves football it. Brain. Anything yeah. you want to know about football, speak to Pleat. I saw him last week. What a genuinely top, top football bloke. Loves his Spurs. He was director of football at Spurs, and Daniel's still got him involved now. He's still there every week. I think Deli Ali's signing was pushed through by Pleat. That's worked out quite nicely. Pleat signed so many players. So I signed for Pleaty. It's funny, the people we've got in common that we really like and respect, it's a, it's a nice feeling to be here in that. Yeah. But from Budgie to Pleat, that's, that's a big jump. Ca- yeah, two <laughs> very different characters, very different characters. But no, Pleaty was director of football. And Pleaty obviously sold me the club, look, this is what we're going to do, this is a vision, we're going to move things forward now. Change the manager, uh, Jacques Santini's coming in, yeah. French manager, yeah. French national manager came in, great hope and expectation. But when I signed for Spurs, there was no manager. I signed for Pleaty and Daniel Levy. I understand why, because effectively it was Daniel's club. He very much runs it as a fiefdom, and he's run it brilliantly. I, I have my criticisms about whether his attitude on winning every financial battle might now be the last hurdle that they've got to get over in order yeah. to win big. But what he's done, and take from a guy who was kind of at Rangers when he was on the board there as part of Enoch, he was kind of laughed out of court. Right. And he's had several thousand last laughs. Because the way in which the training ground, the ground, the squad, the managerial appointments have been transformed under him. Off the pitch, there's, is no, radical. Club, there's no club better in the world off the pitch. You look at the training ground, it's the one of the world's best. The stadium is probably the world's best, the, the state of the art. The build, the NFL franchise that they're going to build. Put, put flesh on the bones because I, I regularly around Spain, I'll say, from what I've seen at Spurs Training Lodge, it, it's the best. But yeah. Try and make people understand what's so different about it. Why is it the best? Every single pitch that they've got is almost a carbon copy of the pitch that they play on at the, the stadium. The indoor facilities they've got, the gym that they've got, the swimming pool that they've got, the hydrojets in the swimming pool that they've got, the physio room, the physio equipment, everything. It, it, nothing's crammed in. The space for everything. The academy's one side, the first team at another side. They've just got the best of everything. They've got a hotel on site now, which, you know, these... Jose said when he first did his press conference stay in the beautiful hotel with a beautiful bed and the beautiful pillows and everything is just set up off the pitch to be the best do you think Daniel's on the pitch attention to detail is a big part oh, of that I mean I'm, I'm very very close friends with the grounds manager there and I know for a fact that Daniel's detail is attention to detail is a lot to do with that Daniel has input into what colour flowers go up the drive yeah. he is absolutely Tottenham Hotspur driven he wants the best he wants everything to look the best They've built a beautiful barbecue area around the back of the training ground for the players or the players and the families. Daniel did it. Daniel had everything, not purposely built. He wanted to have his hand with his gloves on and his boots building it, but he had all the designs done. He knew what he wanted. It, it's treated as though it's his own back garden. As I say, he chooses the colours of the flowers up the drive, which well, is sort of, so refreshing. It sort of is his garden because he's got a macrobiotic vegetable patch for his wife. <laughs> so the right macrobiotic vegetables can be grown on the training ground for her. Yeah. Now that's a level of detail I'm not used to. Uh, from an owner and a chairman, um, he wants to provide the best. He wants to give 
Tottenham Hotspur the very, very best opportunity. Daniel gets a lot of bad press for the way you know he's, he's tight, he doesn't spend his money, but the way that he has run that football club over the years yeah, is that, phenomenal. That wouldn't be mine because no. he, he does spend. He does. It's about, I think now, details, if we're talking about details. Let's say a deal. We don't have to pick on one specifically, but if a deal can be done at 10% higher cost yeah. in May rather than fighting all summer, yeah. whether it's a sale or a purchase, and the sale disrupts in August or September, or the purchase doesn't come in and misses pre-season, that 10% battle that, that he's won. Yeah. Maybe you're better saying, okay, the 10% premium that I hate losing because I'm really good at this means that the player's in early and has a, an integration summer, or yeah. the sale happens quickly so that the forward planning can say, okay, this guy... I think he could fine-tune that. Daniel's clever. Daniel's very clever. Daniel was one of the first owners and chairmen to recognise that he was paying players to sit in the physio room, the treatment mm-hmm. room. So you look at Tottenham Hotspur, you look at the contracts. Daniel's one of the first ones to structure a contract. You get X amount per week. If you play three games in a row, your weekly salary goes up to that. If you play ten in a row, you go up to that. If you play a whole season, then you get that bonus. Play half a season, you get that bonus. And a lot of contracts nowadays are structured like that. You read that players are on 250 grand a week. They will not be on 250 grand a week. There you go. They'll be on a wage. If you play a certain amount of games, you've got an appearance money. As you get older, players will be on a very low, not a lower wage, with a huge appearance money, which is how contracts are structured. You have to earn your money now. Like with some of the contracts at Spurs with Daniel, you'd have to play 10 games, score a hat-trick, do a backflip, touch the moon, and then you get your wages. <laughs> but it's to stop players that just want to sit there, take the that's, wages, that's not, what and not say. play. Malingering is what yeah, that absolutely. Has to stop. Because Daniel was, he, he was unfortunate years before I signed. He had a lot of players, aging players, who were sat in the physio room, not playing, playing 10 to 15 games a year, but still having a basic salary of a very good level. And if we're being nice about the phrase, you can become comfortable like yeah. that. You pay to play football. That's what you pay to do. If you're in the best condition, yeah, if you're in the best condition, you look after yourself, you are ready to play football and you're not chosen, you're on the bench, that's not your fault. But if you're not doing any of that, you're injured all the time or you're not looking after yourself. Daniel was very clever. He wasn't willing to, to suffer fools gladly anymore no. and he structured contracts in a way where you, you paid very, very fairly, you paid very well. But yeah. If you're going to be paid top whack, you earn it. You have to earn it. Yeah. Santini wasn't the right man. I, I don't know why, no. but it, it didn't work and I think mutually... Everybody realised pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. Language barrier was a huge one. He didn't have a word of English, not a word, which was a, a very, very difficult barrier to overcome straight away. And Joel was a man who Ferguson had interviewed and said he wouldn't appoint him because he was too fat and he couldn't <laughs> have Martin Joel around the training ground when he was on his place. Right? Yeah, no, 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 I'm not kidding. But Fergie's on the mission. He, he thought, what does that body shape do mm. as an indication to my players... Well, I'm saying to the players, this is the nick I want you in. And Martin had had that interview. And then when he got the Spurs job, I felt that he was one of those who began to introduce new ideas and vocabulary in that he'd come through a school which was slightly different from the English school. I thought he felt modernising. I thought his brand of football was interesting. But he was also very charismatic. A lot of people found him either easy to believe or easy to follow. Charming. Does that picture great, match with... Great man-manager. Fantastic man-manager. In a coaching role that he was in when Santini was there, Santini's sessions would be very structured. They'd be very um, walking through shape. Very, very little fun. 
but then he'd give Martin a, a session during the week and it'd be brilliant. And you could see his ability, you could see his session. And then you'd talk to Martin after a session, you'd say, God, that was crap, can we do a bit more? And he'd take the forwards at the other end, we'd do a shooting session, do this. And Santini would all be structured and measured and right, that's that, that's that, right, finish, now we can go in. And the lads are like, that was, oh, we, need, we, need some, we need a bit more, we want to do a bit more. And then obviously they go to Martin and he put on another couple of sessions and, and you could just see his level of enthusiasm, his buzz for the game. I think as, as a person, he's just infectious. And I think he was kind of quashed in a coach's role. He, he's, he is a manager, he was a manager. Um, and he, wasn't, he was, the, it was a great link between the player and the manager at that time. But we kind of almost had two managers there because I, with, without a doubt, I suspect his ideas and what he wanted to do with that team that we had was very different to, the, to Santini, to the manager. So when he went, it was a natural progression that Martin got the job. Um, and don't get me wrong, Chrissy Uton was there at the time and he was a fantastic first team coach and has been for many, many years. And very, very surprised with the way that Chrissy crossed the line into management so quickly because he's such a nice, genuine bloke and he's always been there for the players and he's always been on the players' side. But then to make that switch, it's been, it's been, it's been refreshing to see because there's not a lot of, that can do that. Um, if you've been tight with the players and then you've yeah, got to put a distance go the other side. you've got to be the leader yeah. and you've got to discipline them or drop them yeah. or whatever or sell them that's a big change and exactly. it's hard to do make decisions but the, the, as a coach you never have to do that but Martin was great Martin's man management skills were brilliant he, he was different ideas different ideas in training door was always open you could always speak to him he always came across as a confident well spoken but inside you could see he was quite nervous at times he used to smoke, he used to go in the manager's room, you could smell the smoke coming out of the room. And like five, ten minutes after the last speech or in the, in the dressing room, you could see he'd be in there. He'd like do a cigarette in one, he'd like stick it in his mouth, one suck and it'd be gone. He, was, he ended like eating fags. You know, it became, when the pressure became a lot towards it, he found that difficult, I think, as, as management. But I think he's one of the best tactically aware and man managers that I've ever worked with. What did he do for you as a goalkeeper? Or what was... What was your role as far as he was concerned beyond saving things? What type of goalkeeper, what role did he want you to play? Martin had a goalkeeper coach at the time, Hans Sagers, oh, who I think God, yeah. Hansi, he's, I'm still like, good friends with him now, he's moved back to Holland. But Hansi did a lot, I had a great relationship with him in my time at Spurs. And Martin was very, very aware that he himself wasn't a goalkeeper. He didn't profess to know or want to pass on knowledge about goalkeepers which is refreshing as a manager because there's so many managers that think they were. He employed Hans Sagers as his goalkeeper coach. If he had a problem, he'd speak to Hans or speak to me and Hans together at the same time. In his view, it was great as a goalkeeper because we got left to our own devices. Mm. Hans would be there, he would coach me, he would talk to me. If Martin had a problem, he'd talk to us both together and he would say, look, this is what I've seen. What do you think, Hans? What do you think? And it would be, he wouldn't be there saying, right, that's wrong, that's wrong. You don't do that, you don't do that he would have a discussion with Hans, either one-on-one -on, -one on his own or with the two of us. And it was just, it was a, a probably an alien way, foreign way for a manager to do that, if you like. Actually going, do you know what? That's not my area of expertise. Cruyff did that at Barcelona. I've got, they came to him for solutions. He Dutch. said, it's not my job. Dutch. You sort it he's, he's probably seen something like, maybe that's something that's filtered down, filtered through. But he's, he's gone, he's got an opinion on goalkeepers. He can see when things are wrong. But he's gone, 
I'm not a goalkeeper. I don't mean it's you lot are your own breed. To any degree, was he, were he and Hans asking you to be the 11th footballer to, to be the sweeper-keeper? Not, not as much. It didn't really come in that much. I, I was always very, very good with my feet, my mm-hmm. distribution. Because you'd been probably an outfield footballer? Probably one of the one, first ones to bring that side volley, you know, the, the low side volley. Yeah. And I could do that. And I think still to this day I've got the most assists due to the fact that I had Aaron Lennon and Jermaine Defoe on the end of it. So if I'd catch a cross or anything without looking, I knew where it was going. And that's one of the, the weapons that we used. Those two must have adored the fact that you could distribute so accurately, yeah. so long and so quickly. And then I had Berbatov as well, who and Robbie King. So their first touches was phenomenal. Berbatov not quite so much, because if it was anywhere out of his two-metre radius, he would just throw he his arms up in the air. No, he throw his what are you doing, keeper? You idiot. <laughs> Can't you see my lace? He was a night man, yeah. yeah. Can't you see my lace? But if you put it up 50 foot up in the air and dropped it on his lace, it wouldn't move. He was absolutely brilliant. But if he didn't fancy moving, he could make you look a real is, clown. Is a player like that worth it? Because oh, he's top such player. a pain in the arse. Top arts, player, yeah. But so good. Yeah, so good. Still to this day. I played with Berber for three, three years, three seasons at Tottenham. Still to this day, I don't know whether he's shy or arrogant. It's just the way that he is. He's just quiet and just introvert. But he's such a top, top player. As I say, he could make you look so stupid. You kick a ball beautifully 50 yards down the pitch. But if it was two yards to the side of him, he didn't fancy going throw his arms up in the air, give you abuse, make it look like a terrible kick, when actually it was right next to him. His, his talent was phenomenal, but as you say, work ethic was, was questionable. And with some of the managers where minimum requirement is maximum effort, he might not last so long with some managers. Other players felt the same as you? Or there must have been some players like, I can't see beyond him because he's brilliant. And there must have been other players like, listen, I run my bollocks oh, every he, day, and if you're not going to try... If he's on his day, and he, he's unplayable, you can, he's a bit like Mark Viduka. Played with two of them. Two very, very sim. Vaduks is, is off the field. He was a lot more of a... Gregarious? A, a likeable type of guy. He was very outgoing, very laid back. He'd be late for his own funeral, that bloke. He's honestly, he's so laid back. We did a warm down once at Leeds and he'd just turn up. We were running around the pitches all in our training kit. We'd been at training two hours, had breakfast, just going out for a run. Vaduks turns up, pulls next to the fence, jumps over the fence in his tracksuit, just joins the back of the thing. <laughs> Car keys rattling around, money rattling around, phone in his hand. Sorry I'm late, guys. <laughs> and it was one of them where you just accept it because that's yeah. just what he, he doesn't do it out of spite, he doesn't do it out of malicious. He was probably playing with his dogs in the garden and hadn't realised what time it was. But whereas, you know, him and Berber are two very, very two similar players with the talent that they've got. I swear football needs people like that. Oh, he's brilliant. Not the robots that we've been yeah. talking about. Oh, the characters. Absolute characters. But it, then again, it takes managers to man- manage those type of characters because there's not many managers. Because if you go to the Dukes with a big stick and say, you were late this morning, I'll find you two weeks' wages, you lose him. Whereas you go to him and say, mate, come on, do me a favour. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm really sorry, it won't happen again, etc., etc. And it's, it's how you manage these characters. That would strike me if, if I was ever a manager. That would be one of my pleasures because if you, if the talent is there, then dealing with the personality, yeah. particularly if they're a bouncy, gregarious but hard to predict personality, that's where your skill as a man manager comes in. It'd be it'd be trying to get a tune out of a robot that would yeah. finish me. Well, that's one of my real bugbears with the England manager's job over the years. Talk about the England managers. Why do England need the best coach in the world? What is the best coach mm. in the world? going to coach the best players in this country in four days to prepare for a game or two weeks to prepare for a tournament. You're not. You need the best man manager. You've got 23 egos there. 
you need to be able to be tactically aware mm -hmm. of how to beat an opponent, mm -hmm. how to set a team up, and how to get 23 people on side, 11 of which are easy because you're going to pick them. The other lot... How do you keep them alive? Like man them management is the hardest part of an England manager's job. I remember saying that, maybe even writing that, much of embarrassment, when Kevin Keegan took over, because I thought, he's not got the tactical side, but he does have the, the man personality. Side, yeah. And it turned out that his lack on the tactical side was so overbearing. You have the, the man management side and the tactical awareness and the ability to set your team up to beat an opponent is what's needed. You're not going to be able to coach those players in the amount of time that you've got with them. We've got, I've got, I want to lump two together, Paul, here, because one of our socios is Juan Fernandez. And Juan writes into us, as a goalkeeper, it's inevitable that when you make a mistake, it comes at a higher cost than any other player on the pitch. What prepares, prepares you for those moments and what generally helps you bounce back? And I want to tie that to, to talking about your cup final that you win. It's the last trophy. Yeah. And, and you're at the heart of it. But Juan makes a good point because it, it's literally inevitable for every goalkeeper, as it is with every player, that there'll be errors. But there's an unfair attention. There's an unfair um, premium, negative premium, for a goalkeeper if, if a mistake or even something that's perceived to be a mistake. So how do you cope? How do you prepare? How do you get through it? Experience is the only thing that you can do it. I think as a youngster, and I think at the, you know when you're a youngster, you don't expect that you're going to make that many mistakes. You don't go out to make mistakes. The way I look at it now with the, the hindsight that I've got and the experience I've got, if you're passing on advice to goalkeepers, mentality, you have to have a golfer's mentality. That's the only way you can mm. look at it. You, you hit a bad shot and it's awful and it's terrible, it's in the water. There's no point throwing your clubs about, snapping your clubs in half, cursing and swearing, oh, because you've got to do that. Wrong. Yeah, yeah, you and me both, <laughs> because you've got to play that shot again. You look at the top-class golfers in the world, they may miss a putt from six foot that they should have made, they won't do it again on the next shot, because they know that their next shot is more important than the one that's just gone. And as a goalkeeper, you make a mistake, unfortunately that's going to happen. You have to forget that. That's gone. Like anything in life, you cannot change what's just gone. But that's a process. You can say that intellectually. Yeah. And I'm convinced. But, but you when can't. you're working on your own head... And you're on the pitch, and the worst thing you do as a goalkeeper, you go chasing the game. You go looking for something to do. So if you let one through your hands and it's a goal, you'll come for a cross that you shouldn't come for because you think oh, you want to atone for your mistake. You'll come out because you want to atone for your mistake. The hard is the golfer's mentality. It's keeping a balanced, level head, making the right decisions and continually doing the correct things because you cannot change that. I mean, the biggest mistake, well, not mistake, the thing that happened to me in my career, the Croatia game, the Gary Neville back pass, I in no way expected the backlash from that, what no. came from it, from the press and everything else. I remember phoning the missus after the game because um, we, we, we used to fly on planes back from Manchester and London mm -hmm. uh, because of the northern players Split that the suddenly divide. Yeah. So one, one time the, the plane had dropped off in London first, then it would refuel and go back to Manchester. And we had an important game at the weekend. So I think Spurs and Chelsea, I think, it, or maybe Arsenal at the time, clubbed together, got us a plane and put us on a little private plane back. I remember getting on the plane, phoning my missus before we took off. She was like really off and quiet. I'm like, is everything all right? She went, you don't realise how big this is going to be, do you? I went, well, pass me the ball back. It went over my foot. What can I do? I said, I didn't mean to do it. She went, no, 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 you're going to get a lot from this. And I wasn't prepared for what was to follow, you know, in, in the, the coming weeks. Um, and that was hard. That, was, that really knocked me for probably 18 months, two years in total, if you look at it, confidence-wise, because everywhere you go, you're reminded of it. You know, the ball comes back to you on a back pass. I think my first one was Aston Villa away the first game. Every time it comes back, whoo. You go back and pick the ball up from behind the goal, there's somebody reminding you of it. 
and every question that you face in an interview is related to that and it's constantly on your mind as a player you have to be so mentally strong to recover from a, a mistake like mm-hmm. that now I could cope with it a hell of a lot better than I probably did then but it was a fluke you know, yeah, it was but, literally I'd almost say unless you were an Olympic gymnast it's beyond your control there's but, nothing you can do but still people will jump on it as a mistake I mean people, it's, a, it's, it's it, it was the turf it's hit the turf and got over my foot it was Gary Neville's fault anyway should have passed it wide of the goal we, we I mean, when, you, when you're a kid you're taught that. to pass it wide of the goal yeah 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 <laughs> but you can sit here and laugh about it now and in no. hindsight but it's you're so caught up in it at the time and the, the, the pressures and the stress that come with being England's number one and at that time it had been plain sailing for me yeah my career apart from getting relegated with Leeds but I was never kind of sighted in that because I was loyal yeah played well every week mm. tried my hardest never ever really made a, a high profile error until that point but, uh, that, it, we, I think we're agreeing that that's not an error well no it's not but it, 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 it was perceived as an error there, and, there's and, my and point. the stuff that came with it that came crashing down on me afterwards I wasn't ready for mm. In my opinion, wasn't that like a mob mentality? I thought it was ugly because it gained unnecessary momentum. Yeah. Similarly, in my, not identically, but similarly in my point of view to, I think it was Sinetian in 98, I was there reporting on Simeone kicking Beckham, the referee yeah. getting it wrong about maybe you give Beckham a yellow card, you don't send him off. But yeah. if he's going off, Simeone, automatic, you know, the circular before yeah. the World Cup, Red card for tackles reminding get and the mob mentality went after him when he was third in line there because Simeone was the aggressor, should have been red guarded. The referee got it wrong, but it was Beckham that and that too, just like the Chris away game, felt like a mob mentality yeah. to me. And it did it lasted for, for so long for me, and it lasted a long time, and it was every week. And it was you're always related back to that point. And it was hard, a really tough point in my career for me. It affected my performances. And then back at Tottenham, um, one day Ramos then came in, who immediately when he came in, it was a similar kind of thing to Pep Guardiola and Joe Hart. He had perceived ideas of me, didn't like me as a goalkeeper for whatever reason, didn't like the way I was playing. And if he could have replaced me, if he had a, a, a top number two, he would have done it. He kept putting me in and out of the team with Radic Cherny. With Cherny. Radic Cherny came in and out of the, the team. But whenever there was a big game like the cup final or a big league game, he put me back in. And my confidence at that point was you can't down, it was on the floor. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I remember winning the, the, the cup at Spurs and that was probably, well, it was without doubt the highest point in my career, a club career, mm. but my confidence was probably the lowest that it's been for a long, long time um, with the way that I'd been in and out of the team and the, the previous 18 months, two years leading up to that. So was that an enjoyable day? <laughs> or is it blemished? Yeah, it's, it's, it's blemished. It's looking back on it, it's the, one of the best moments of my career because I used to dream of climbing the stairs at Wembley as a kid. Old cliche. Um, but my son was born in February that year. He was in hospital with bronchiolitis attached to wires and I'd had a tough two years. Mm. So instead of all the party afterwards, we finished at Wembley and I went straight to the hospital. So it was kind of a, a double-edged sword, if you like, a really high point in my career. But you look back with the memories, the, the two years that had led up to that, and then having my son, who was what was the final was February, wasn't it? Yeah. February 2008. He was born January the 14th, and the final was February, and he was in hospital at what six weeks old, wired up to a machine, suffering with bronchiolitis. 
So there's, there's other things that were going on at the time. And you can't take but, that out of your head, no matter how big the game is. I always, there. But I was always able to do that. The, 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 the pitch was kind of my little safe haven. Everything else that was going on in your life and everything that was going on around, as soon as you cross that white line, I found that 45 minutes first half able to switch off. Going to the dressing room at half-time, I'd want to check my phone, see, see what's going on. I'd go in at half-time and get my phone, go to the toilet send you on the toilet or whatever, check the phone, see how they are, it's a little text or whatever else, go back over the white line again, be able to play, and then done. But without intruding too much in your family, that little boy who was hooked up to machines then, how's his ATR dash at the moment? Yeah, he's doing all right now. <laughs> yeah, he's not too bad. He's, uh, he's 12, uh, he's in the academy at Leeds, and he's, uh, he's in the Yorkshire Academy for cricket. Life can be sweet so, sometimes. Uh, he was born with talipes as well. Uh, club feet so we didn't even know he was going to walk at the time so it was a very very tough time in my personal life and career but, so to win that trophy at that time was a real high for me and and for him too it's a memory of this guy who'll one day be a, a Yorkshire all-rounder probably handier with a ball but knocking a few yeah, around got too. some great pictures of him with tubes up his nose wide to a machine in a tiny Spurs kit and the cup winner's medal around his neck that ain't a bad image. Yeah, it's, it's good little pictures. Let's hope whether a mutual friend of ours can bring us to happier times. But it's also, it's not an Arsenal question, but Tom Lee yeah. has sent us in a question saying, <laughs> is it true you were cl- close to joining Atleti? And how do you look back on what might have been? There was a time, yeah. Um, it came through my agent, I think it was at the time. I don't know what, the, I can't remember what the exact link with Atletico was. But I think it was either the first or second season at Spurs. And there was a real opportunity to go I think um, nothing official but the, the word had come through my agent that there was a possibility through a contact with the club nothing ever came of it but it got to the point where we was having kind of Spanish lessons at home thinking maybe this this could happen that there was an opportunity there um, and even if there isn't I, I still wouldn't mind learning Spanish because at some point in my career I would like to play abroad that's one thing I would have loved to have done is played abroad in my career but when you look at the exportation of England goalkeepers or English goalkeepers, there aren't many. You look at the foreign coaches' attitude towards English goalkeepers, Pep Guardiola with Joe Hart, one day Ramos to myself, for whatever, there's a stigma around English goalkeepers and they don't export very well. I mean, you look at the goalkeepers now, Scott Carson went to Turkey, David James, India. Other than that, I'm struggling to, to think of a lot of English goalkeepers of modern day times that have exported very well. But it's something that probably should happen in order for them to expand their football vocabulary and to change and bring new ideas back. Overall, a blending, just like has happened at coaching, physiotherapy, diet, football, outfield players, yeah. the blending between England and the continent now yeah. is, 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 is actually making well, English football better. Staff especially, yeah. staff, managers, coaches, fitness staff, players to an extent, but it's still English players, there's not that many that get exported. It, as many as come in, if you mm-hmm. like, you, you look at the ratio to ones that come in to leave, and English goalkeepers that get exported, minimum, if any. You, so you didn't play abroad in the end, from a, somebody who lives in Spain, I, I wish you had, but pick me one of you, because the, that Champions League group, I wanted to link Atleti to your experience with continental football, and for all the Europa League games you played, for the ups and downs, difficult results against PSV, Sevilla... Overall, that first, um, I'm not, that first exposure must have just been heaven. Barcelona, yeah. Real Madrid, winning in the Olympic Stadium in Rome against yeah. Sven Joran Eriksson's Lazio. That's where I got my England chance because Sven saw me play there when I was younger. And I think I stayed in his mind from that point. 
that was the bandwagon, that bubble that we're talking about, the Leeds team, young, fearless, didn't really appreciate what we were doing at the time, going around Europe, getting a draw at the San Siro to, to qualify for the last 16, drawing one all away with AC Milan, beating, as you say, beating Lazio, um, drawing at home, beating AC Milan at home, Barcelona. It's great at the time, you think this is brilliant, but you don't realise the magnitude of what's going on. Which was the big performance, the Lazio one? I don't mean for... We, for me Sven was our last guest, yeah. and we found him extraordinary, yeah. because he wasn't in his England manager personality, and he yeah. began to talk about Sinisa Mihailovic. He talked about the Lazio side he'd constructed yeah. by saying, bring me Veron, Mihailovic and Mancini to Cranio, to the president, I'll win you the title. And you were playing Lazio at a point where they'd... Rather smashed up. Yeah, they Italy. were a decent team. Yeah, they were. A good they team. were a decent team. That's yeah. euphemistic. So, but uh, which was the which was the night that sticks with you for any reason? The noise, the passion, the smells, your own performance. Barcelona game at home. My first, my debut in the Champions League. Um, I always remember one of my friends at the time. He, he did a video for me after the game. A video. Do you remember one of the old black cassettes that he used to put in, slide down, and he, he wrote on it and he gave it to me about two or three weeks after. Rivaldo versus Robinson <laughs> and that was that was his take on the game because for me it was one of the best games that I've, I've played I made saves it was just a perfect night under the lights at Ellen Road the atmosphere was unbelievable playing against Barcelona somebody who dreamt as a kid Xavi, Luis Enrique, Rivaldo, Gerard Dutruel and goals who yeah. Lee Boyer somehow chipped I don't know quite how still got the, his the, shirt the brothers are, the De Boer brothers are on and on the bench and everywhere you look there's yeah. outstanding talent Rivaldo is Rivaldo was around the best player in the world. He was, he was, he was, in my opinion, one of the best players, if not the best player I've ever played against at that time. And I was just going through it on pure adrenaline. It was one of those nights where we were second best, but we were somehow getting a result. And for 94 minutes, it looked like we were going to beat them one nil. And it was the highest and one of the lowest points of my career because I knew I'd played so well and constantly in action. It was literally I was making a save every 10 minutes or so, and you, you were always involved. So it wasn't a game you could switch off. And then when the goal went in, their equaliser, 93rd, 94th minute, it was such a kick in the teeth after playing so well. You forget playing well and you just think of that. It felt like a loss at the time. But as I say, looking back on it now, that's probably what that game probably was giving me the opportunity and the platform to build my career because all of a sudden people took note then. It's, who's that kid? Who's that lad? Champions League, that's not a bad performance. Oh, he's played a few games because the coverage wasn't as it is now. These days, and you, you get to see all the games, and people look back and go, oh, played in the Premier League, made his debut at 18. It could be a goalkeeper, and that's when it, an opportunity, a platform then to build from there. Viva Barcelona in that case, I'm glad they gave you one of your great nights. That's <laughs> fantastic. Um, winding towards the end, Bet365, I've asked, and I've got a view on this, but I'm going to wait to see what you say. I've got a strong view on this, and it might be a minority one. They say to us, who should be England's number one for Euro 2020? Let's say it's going ahead. Let's yeah. ignore the threat to the tournament. What, what's your opinion on either who should be the three that go and who should start? At the moment, the three that go are Pickford, Henderson and Pope. OK. Pickford plays for me. Ah, Pickford okay. plays. His international stock and his credibility at international level for what he's done with Gareth Southgate, he's, he's, there's no issue to drop him, in my opinion. I think he's played well. I think at, the t- at times now, this season at Everton, he's made some bad decisions. There's goals gone in that have cost him. And reverting back to what I said earlier on in the interview about goalkeepers getting spotlight scrutiny they have been England's number one, a different mentality. That's something that that lad's having to learn to deal with now. Mm-hmm. And people sitting there going, well, he's let two goals in now, let, should be somebody else. 
we do that with every England goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. I had that. David James had that. Mm-hmm. Joe Hart did that. Yeah, he's he's passed it. He's had it now. That's he, he can't do that anymore. We should have somebody else. The problem with the goalkeeper is there's always a goalkeeper that's going to be playing well. Jordan Pickford had that kind of ride, the same as me. Sunderland, all right, he was facing 50 shots a game, he was saving 48 of them. He was looking brilliant. Gone to Everton, played in a struggling team at the beginning of the season. Now the manager's changed. I think his form's changed. I think he's improved as well. Mm-hmm. And I don't think at international level he's done anything particularly wrong that calls for him to be to be changed. I think his experience. He's going to get stronger with his experiences. He's going to become a better goalkeeper for his experiences. And to go into the European Championships with Henderson, who's got no caps, and Nick Pope, who's got two caps, I think is a huge risk. I think the old adage, if you're not experienced, how would you get experience if you're not going to get, get given it? With the friendlies coming up, whether they, they are potentially friendlies or whether they're cancelled due to whatever's going on in the world, it'd be a time to, to give these goalkeepers caps because that's another thing that we, we suffer as, as an international team. You always have a goalkeeper that's got 30 or 40 caps as your number one. Mm-hmm. Your number two's got a single number of Nothing. caps. And if anything happens to that goalkeeper, then we are guilty of not being able to give two, three, four an opportunity to get game time. Well, Tom Heaton, for me, would be in there if he was fit. Mm-hmm. Tom Heaton would be pushing Jordan Pickford for a start in position wow. because he's an outstanding goalkeeper. He's of an age where nothing phases him. Mm-hmm. He's calm. What he spreads around him to the, to the rest of the defence. Worked with Tom for 18 months at Burnley. Burnley yeah. Very, very impressed with him on and off the field. And I think given the opportunity, if, Pickford for, if Pickford's form was to drop or there was a call to replace him, Heaton would be the one for me. You're painting a, an extremely rosy picture. I don't want to say golden age because you know, the one that caught my eye is Henderson. Henderson. I think Henderson yeah. is really special. Yeah. And therefore, if Pickford and about to experience is, is, needs to be retained as number one, and I wasn't doubting him. I, I, my thought was, I thought Henderson's really special. Yeah. If you start giving him the chance... Um, and, and Heaton's back. That, that's three really powerful minimum. Pope I haven't seen enough of, but that's three that really Pope powerful choices. Pope so is a really top goalkeeper. Four top choices? Yeah. yeah that's a great time for England goalkeepers then. There is an abundance, well, not an abundance, but there's four strong that goalkeepers. That isn't bad. Yeah, there's four strong goalkeepers. Um, and as I say, Jordan Pickford is the man in possession at the moment, and I think he's, he, he hasn't done enough or a lot wrong to, to be able to, to question that at international level. We're going to finish on something that we, that we have to ask you about because I think the, the nation outside Sunderland wants Newcastle to win a trophy because you just, everybody yeah. just wants to see what the hell would that be like when these magical supporters yeah. get a Finally get something, yeah. So that's one subject. And another one that's a little bit more controversial is because in my lifetime in, in the UK... Still, because I'm that much older, Leeds has been the most hated side. Yeah. But now there's a real appetite. It's like they used to say about the crowd behind the goal, like, they would draw the ball in. Everybody's sort of drawing Leeds into the Premier League. Yeah, wouldn't it be great? About it? What is coming if they go up? Particularly in this gnomish, unfathomable, odd, eccentric, clever, talented manager in Marcelo Bielsa. What do you see? He's phenomenal, what he's done. And what he does is... As I say, I'm there three nights a week with the academy because my boy's there and you see him, he's still there at that time of night. He's very aloof with his players, but yet he's still got an unbelievable relationship and a rapport with his players. What he demands of the players, the work that he puts in them on the training ground, what he demands on a Saturday on the pitch. A lot of players would turn around and just go, really? You ask the players and the squad that he's amassed, they'll just turn around and go, yeah, it's what he does, that's what we do, that's the Bielsa way, that's what we do. But he's got that respect by getting the results and the players can see the effect of what he does and Leeds have been out of the Premier League for far too long 
in my opinion, the term sleeping giant is massively overused, but it's the perfect fit for that club. Well, let's hope that um, prediction is correct. Um, this has been everything that I hoped it would be and more. I hope we haven't bored you. Absolutely it's not. It's been thrilling for us. I've got so much more to give you at the end of the few hours if you want. <laughs> uh, be really careful with me when you say that. We'll do part two because yeah. you, you've got to get back to your real life at some stage. Yeah. Um, I hope that we're looking at the father of a future Yorkshire all-rounder cricketer. Thank you. And uh, good luck to Leeds back in the Premier League. I've got no doubt they're going up. I hope so. I've got some doubt about whether Marcel stays and keeps them there. But like you, he's so interesting, so frustrating sometimes. Let's do part two in Barcelona. I'll come to you next time. Part two in Barcelona. Deal. Thank you. For listening to The Big Interview, it's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.